Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, looks like today we'll be heading back to the late 1700s as we look at the mutiny on the bounty. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Maybe you've even seen one of the classic film adaptations of the event. If you have, you no doubt see Captain Bly as a tyrant, deserving of having his crew mutiny. Think of Charles Lawton in the 1935 classic version, for example. But is that how Bly really was? Was the mutiny actually justified? And what was the bounty's mission in the first place? Those are the things we hope to find out in this episode. First off, let's start with the ship, the HMS Bounty. It was built in 1784 and was a three-masted ship, but wasn't as big as one would think, having a length of only 91 feet. In comparison, Nelson's flagship, the HMS Victory, was double that length, as were most first-rate ships of the line. So the Bounty was a small ship. It was only 25 feet wide at its widest point, and was lightly armed, with four four-pound carriage guns and ten half-pound swivel guns. The weights I just said with the guns denote the size of the shot they fired. There were also assorted muskets and other small arms. So what's going to be done with the Bounty? Its mission was to sail to Tahiti to pick up breadfruit plants, then carry them to the British West Indies where they'd be planted and be a source of cheap food. While doing this, their route would also have them surveying an underexplored passage that the British thought important. Thus, they'd sail the Atlantic and round Cape Horn into the Pacific. After Tahiti, they'd continue westward through the Endeavor Strait, cross the Indian Ocean, then the South Atlantic, up to the West Indies and the Caribbean. This planned voyage would have them circumnavigating the globe. The Royal Society promoted this mission, and it was organized by its president, Sir Joseph Banks. In order to transport over a thousand live plants and keep them alive on a long voyage, the bounty needed to be refitted. Its great cabin, normally used as the captain's quarters, was turned into a sort of greenhouse for the plants. Along with the windows, glazed skylights were added, and the deck was covered with lead sheeting to create a drainage system. Remember, on a sailing ship, fresh water was at a premium, and with the plants needing to be watered, this drainage system was devised to recycle as much fresh water back to the plants as possible. The space required for this refit meant that on such a small ship, the crew and officers would be severely overcrowded on what promised to be a very long voyage. Captaining the bounty on this voyage was Lieutenant William Bly. He had come from a naval family and been sailing all his life. At the age of 21, he had the honor of serving as chief navigator on Captain Cook's third and final voyage from 1776 to 1780. When the American War of Independence ended in 1783 with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, Britain reduced the size of the Royal Navy. 
Bly found himself stationed on shore at half pay. He ended up taking temporary employment in the mercantile service, captaining the merchant ship Britannia. He actually ended up making about five times what he had earned as a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. But when command of the bounty was offered to him, he jumped at it, even though it meant a massive pay cut because it was such a prestigious expedition. The crew of the bounty was made up of 46 men. 44 were Royal Navy, along with two civilian botanists, who were referred to as gardeners. Directly under Bly in the chain of command were the warrant officers, headed by the sailing master, John Fryer. Along with him, the other warrant officers were the boatswain, carpenter, gunner, and surgeon. Below this were the other officers, two master's mates, a surgeon's mate, and two midshipmen. Added to this were four honorary midshipmen, referred to as young gentlemen. These were guys who wanted to become naval officers. Today they'd be called like officer candidates or cadets. A good portion of the bounty's crew was chosen by Bly himself or on the recommendation of trusted friends, and a handful had sailed with him on past voyages. One such sailor was 23-year-old Fletcher Christian, who had been on two previous voyages with Bly. He and Bly had formed a strong master-student type relationship as Bly taught him how to become a highly skilled navigator. When Christian heard about the bounty's mission and that Bly would be captaining it, he offered to sign on as a young gentleman and even offered to work without pay. Bly would have none of that and signed him on as one of the master's mates. Now before we go any farther, please realize that this crew was much younger than one might think. Bly was only 33 at the time and the vast majority of the crew was in their 20s or late teens. Keep that in mind once the bounty gets to Tahiti. The two oldest members of the crew were the gunner who was 39 and the sailmaker who was 40. The two youngest, both young gentlemen, were both 15. The bounty set sail on November 28, 1787, having been delayed awaiting final orders. It was further delayed by contrary winds and actually didn't set out until December 23rd. These delays had made Bly nervous. He had wanted to reach Cape Horn before the end of the short summer season in the Southern Hemisphere, because the seas in that area became quite brutal in the fall and winter. With the delays though, that seemed more and more unlikely, so he got permission from the Admiralty to head east to around the Cape of Good Hope as an alternate route if needed. As the voyage got underway, Bly proved to be a good captain, who was strict about ship cleanliness and food quality for the crew. He even reworked the usual watch system, which had sailors alternating on duty and off duty every four hours. He replaced this with a three watch system, which had a sailor on duty for four hours, then off duty for eight. He felt it would keep the men better rested. He also arranged for regular music to be played for the crew's entertainment and encouraged the men to dance on deck or walk around the deck as forms of exercise. Yes, all in all, the voyage was going smoothly, so much so that Bly had not even had to administer any punishments. At this time in the Royal Navy, 
Flogging was quite common for even the smallest offense. So the fact that Bly did not have to resort to it certainly says something about the cheerful conditions on the bounty. The only negative aspect of the voyage up to that point was the conduct of Thomas Huggin, the ship's surgeon. He proved to be lazy, unhygienic, and frequently drunk. From the very start of the voyage, Bly and Christian had got on well. Bly treated him in such a way as if to imply that he was his second-in-command, rather than Friar, the sailing master. On March 2, 1788, Bly promoted Christian to the rank of acting lieutenant and formalized his position as second-in-command. While Friar showed no outward resentment to this, his relations with Bly significantly worsened. About a week after this, Friar insisted one of the men be flogged for insolence. This was a jerk move on his part, because he knew Bly was trying to avoid floggings. He also knew that Bly refusing to allow the punishment would make him appear weak. So in essence, he forced Bly to do something he really didn't want to do. As I said, that's a jerk move. In early April, which would be fall in the southern hemisphere, the bounty approached Cape Horn and ran into terrible weather, facing gale force winds, heavy storms, and squalls of hail and sleet. For two weeks, Bly tried to round Cape Horn, but the contrary winds and storms kept pushing him back. Finally, in mid-April, he turned the bounty eastward toward its alternate route around the Cape of Good Hope. On May 24, 1788, the bounty anchored in False Bay, which was east of the Cape of Good Hope. The next five weeks were spent making necessary repairs loading fresh supplies, and the crew enjoying a little shore leave. In letters he posted home from here, Bly bragged about how well and fit he and his crew were, especially compared to the crews of the other ships docked there. The bounty left False Bay on July 1st and set out across the southern part of the Indian Ocean to their next port of call, Adventure Bay, Tasmania, which they reached on August 21st. Here again, they spent time on shore, resting and recuperating, replenishing supplies and water, and felling timber. Lumber was always a necessity on a wooden sailing ship, as things seemed to be constantly breaking at sea. And it was here that the first sign of open discord between Bly and his officers occurred. Bly exchanged some heated words with the ship's carpenter, William Purcell, Apparently, Bly didn't like the methods Purcell was using to cut wood. Bly ordered him back to the ship, but he refused and stood his ground. Bly then ordered that his rations be withheld until he complied, which he quickly did. After leaving Adventure Bay and heading for Tahiti, a few more clashes occurred between Bly and his officers. First, on October 9th, Fryer refused to sign the ship's account books, which he was supposed to do unless Bly gave him a letter attesting to his competence throughout the voyage. Bly wouldn't stand for this attempt at coercion. He gathered the crew and read the Articles of War to them. Now, I know, they weren't at war. Actually, those articles were a set of regulations to govern the conduct of members of the Royal Navy. Basically, Bly was publicly reminding Fryer of the rules and of the trouble he could get into for refusing to sign. Friar backed down. 
The second clash occurred with the ship surgeon Huggin in the middle of October. As I said earlier, Huggin was a drunk, and as the voyage went on, he became more and more incapacitated. His careless bloodletting treatment of seaman James Valentine led to Valentine's death from a blood infection. Huggin lied to Bly and said Valentine died of scurvy to try to cover up his incompetence. Bly ended up confiscating his alcohol supply, which sobered him up for a time. He was able to examine the crew for venereal diseases, of which he found none, before the bounty landed in Tahiti on October 26, 1788. The plan at this point was to spend about five months on Tahiti, getting the cargo of breadfruit plants ready to go. Bly had easy negotiations with the local chieftains, one of whom remembered him from when he served with Cook, and had no problems exchanging the many gifts he brought for the breadfruit plants. Bly had Christian establish a shore compound where the plants could be nurtured until they were ready to be potted for the voyage. For this crew of young guys, five months in Tahiti seemed like paradise. Their duties were fairly easy, there was plenty of downtime, and many of the crew went hog-wild in increasingly promiscuous behavior with the local women. All told, 18 members of the crew, including Christian, came down with STDs and needed what little treatment could be provided back then. As for Bly, he was married, so he didn't mess around with the local women but tolerated it in his men, saying he was unsurprised, since the allure of the tropical island and its women was something most of these young guys could have never imagined. He did, however, expect them to do their work efficiently, and became more and more angry at the increasing instances of neglect and slackness on the part of his officers. On December 10th, the surgeon Huggin died, most likely from his extreme alcohol abuse. Also at this time, Bly became more and more critical of Christian, often berating and humiliating him in front of the crew and the locals for real and imagined slackness. Punishments, especially floggings, became common among the crew for even slight infractions. Things continued to get bad, so on January 5, 1789, three men, Charles Churchill, John Millward, and William Musprit, stole one of the ship's small boats and deserted. Musprit had been flogged recently for neglect, and that's probably what drove them to take off. The three men had left their personal belongings behind, and among Churchill's things was found a list of names. Bly suspected that these names could have been possible accomplices in the men's desertion. Christian's name was on the list, but he was finally able to persuade Bly that although he didn't know what the list of names was for, it certainly wasn't part of any plot to desert. Bly dropped the matter, and three weeks later, the deserters were captured and returned to the bounty, where they were soundly flogged. Between February and April, over a thousand plants were potted and loaded on board the bounty. The ship was also made ready for the long voyage to the Caribbean. Bly was eager to be away, but many of the sailors weren't looking forward to the departure and trading easy duty on land for the severe life at sea. The bounty left Tahiti on April 5th, 1789. For the next three weeks, Bly's anger and annoyance skyrocketed to the point of paranoia. 
and the main target for his outburst was Christian. Now here's the odd thing. Bly seemed to be unaware of the negative effects his behavior was having on the crew. Furthermore, after a burst of anger, Bly would resume a normal conversation with the man he had just chewed out as if nothing happened. That seems a bit odd to me. On April 22nd, the bounty landed in what is now Tonga to gather wood and replenish water and other supplies. Bly had been to Tonga before and was fully aware that the natives could be quite unpredictable. He put Christian in charge of a shore party to collect water and equipped the party with muskets, but then ordered that the muskets had to stay on the boat once they beached it. The shore party was harassed and threatened so much that they couldn't complete their task. When they returned to the bounty, Bly cursed Christian as a damned cowardly rascal. Further problems ashore with the natives resulted in the loss of a small anchor and an adze. Bly again berated Christian for the loss of these items. When the bounty left Tonga, things only got worse. Christian was already in a terrible mental state when, on October 27th, Bly accused him of stealing coconuts from the captain's private supply. The entire crew was punished for this theft, with Bly stopping their rum ration and cutting their food rations in half. Christian was so angry that he was going to get some lumber and make a raft and escape to the nearest island. His feelings were known among some, some of the officers who urged him not to desert and let him know that if he seized the ship, many would support him. So in the small hours of the morning of April 28, 1789, Christian decided to act. After discussions with some of the officers, he knew who would side with him. He gathered these men on the upper deck, and at about 5.15 in the morning, he armed them with muskets. Then he and three men went to Bly's cabin, grabbed and bound him, and hauled him up to the quarter deck. Christian held the rope that tied his hands, much like a leash. During this, Bly shouted continuously for help, and most of the crew were roused from sleep and came to see what was happening. General chaos ensued, as no one was even sure of who were mutineers and who were loyal to Bly. Christian had meant to set Bly and a few men adrift in the Bounty's jolly boat, which was one of the smaller boats the Bounty carried. This boat proved to be unseaworthy, so Christian ordered the launch of a larger ship's boat that could hold ten. However, Christian and the other mutineers had not realized how many crew wanted to leave with Bly. It was about half the crew, though remember, Christian's men were the ones who had the guns. Because of this, the largest boat, a 23-foot launch, was used. Over the next few hours, those leaving with Bly gathered their possessions and got into the launch. The vessel became so badly overloaded, with over 20 men in it, so Christian ordered some of them to come back aboard the bounty, which they reluctantly did. At about 10 a.m., the line holding the launch was cut, and shortly after that, Bly ordered its small sail to be raised. Of the 44 men who were on the bounty at the time of the mutiny, because remember, there had been two deaths earlier, 19 crowded into the launch and left. The 25 men remaining on board the bounty were Christian and his hardcore mutineers, those loyal to Bly and detained against their own will, and those who were kind of on the fence, 
who couldn't have gone with Bly anyway because there was no room. So wow, things sure fell apart. We have a mutiny on the bounty. I wonder what will happen to Bly and his followers in this open boat. What will Christian and the mutineers do on the bounty? Well, kind listeners, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait till next week's episode. Yes, this is a cliffhanger, but I promise you, next week I'll come back with part two of Mutiny on the Bounty. So if you like this episode, please tell your friends. And again, tune in next week for the conclusion of this. I look forward to talking with you then.